0: Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series, Living Proof, examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Adjua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners, We know you have enjoyed the Living Proof podcast, as evidenced by the more than 130,000 downloads to date. Thanks to all of you. We'd like to know what value you may have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you, practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the contact us tab. Again, thanks for listening and we look forward to hearing from you. Sexting is a portmanteau of the words sex and texting. It's an issue that seems to be on everybody's lips, Uh, excuse me, I mean mobile devices. It's been featured on popular television shows such as Chuck, Glee, and Law & Order: SVU. It's been an issue of controversy for celebrities, sports stars, and even politicians. It's even been the focus of schools' get-tough efforts and legislative activity. There's even an app for it. But what is sexting? How prevalent is it? And is it really a problem? Today's Living Proof guests take on these questions and present a balanced approach to practice and policy interventions related to youth sexting. Dr. Poco Kernsmith is an associate professor at Wayne State University School of Social Work. And Dr. Roger Kernsmith is a full professor at Eastern Michigan University in criminology and sociology. Their collaborative research has focused on the gendered context of intimate violence, including intimate partner violence, stalking, and sexual coercion. The pair have also been involved in advocacy and research related to sex offender management policy. Nicole Fava, doctoral student at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, spoke with Drs. Pocos Kernsmith and Roger Kernsmith by telephone. Please note that this episode contains some background distortion that is due to technical problems we experience while recording. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast.
1: I'm Nicole Fava, a doctoral student at the University at Buffalo, and I'm here today speaking with Dr. Poco Kernsmith from Wayne State University and Dr. Roger Kernsmith from Eastern Michigan University to discuss sexting. Thank you both so much for joining us.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you.
1: So to start us off, Poco, I was wondering if you could just explain what sexting is.
2: Yeah, sexting is kind of a general term used to refer to sexual communication that happens either with cell phones or over the internet. So that can include sexually explicit messages, sending and receiving of sexually explicit nude or semi-nude photos. That can happen either over cell phones, through email, through social networking sites, or any other avenues that are using primarily technological mediums.
1: In terms of the evolution of sexting, I wonder is this something that you view as brand new or something that sort of evolved for
3: youth? one of the things that we've kind of come to as we started to research this issue is that things don't change a lot and adolescent sexuality isn't isn't much different. I mean, they've got there's there are new avenues. Everyone has cell phones, everyone has Facebook accounts, but adolescents are doing the same things and we're just sort of seeing them kind of pop out in new ways. So um, I wouldn't say I would describe it as evolution. Um, I think it's adaptation to new contexts and cultural norms really haven't just caught up with those yet.
2: And I think I would add that essentially the behavior is, the same, it's just the medium for doing it is different, um, which then leads to greater potential risk. In the past, if you, know, you took a picture of yourself with a Polaroid and handed it to somebody, you know, they'd have to take that to a copy machine to distribute it. At this point, you send it over your cell phone. That can instantly be distributed across the internet and over cell phones much more easily than in the past.
1: Yeah, and that's sort of what I was thinking about. You know, is this really new behavior for adolescents or they just have a different way of sort of doing the same thing?
3: It's sort of coincidental. I yesterday was following some links out of personal interest, and wound up looking at a website where they had posted graffiti that they had found in Pompeii. So these were, you know, ancient Romans uh, writing with charcoal on the walls of pubs and inns, things like that. And there are things like you know, I screwed two barmaids to this, literally using those words. And this person's a blank or, you know, I'm writing this thing to socially embarrass you. So, you know, I really don't think in the, in the universe of, of human behavior, things have changed very much. It's just the
2: medium.
1: And how prevalent does sexting seem to be among teens?
2: There's not a lot of empirical research that's available that actually can, can quantify that specifically. The estimates range from as high as you know, about half of all adolescents are doing it in some extremes down to maybe 4% of adolescents who are actually sending these kinds of text messages or sharing this kind of information. So it's hard to know that exactly, but it seems that the most reliable evidence shows that it's closer to maybe 15% of youth that are engaging in these behaviors.
1: And I was wondering if you could talk about your recent project regarding public opinion towards sanctions for teen sexting a little bit.
2: The recent survey that we did was a telephone survey that was done across the state of Michigan, um, which asked adults about their opinions about sexting behaviors and what they felt would be appropriate consequences for sexting behavior. So for each individual who participated in the study, they were randomly assigned to a hypothetical relationship where it was either a male and a female, two females, two males who are engaging in a variety of behaviors. So that included sending nude photos, receiving nude photos or sharing that nude photo that they had received onto other people. And what we wanted to look at was what was the difference in their support for consequences depending on the type of behavior, the age of the people that were involved, and also whether it was a same-sex relationship or a male and a female who were involved. So what we found when we looked at the consequences was um, that the majority of the adults did support some type of consequence for this behavior. The most common were that they supported either prison or probation as the most appropriate sanction followed by mandatory sex offender counseling. There were very few who said they should get counseling or there should be a personal protection order or something like that put in place. But about a quarter of them were suggesting that probation or prison was the most appropriate. We also were primarily interested in the sex offender registry and whether or not they felt that these individuals should be placed on the sex offender registry. And we found that that was actually quite low only about 8% supported sex offender registration. But when we looked at the specific types of behaviors, there was quite a bit of difference. They were most in support of putting someone on the registry or sharing a photo that they had received from someone else, so distributing a photo of another person. And that was actually 44% who supported that. Receiving a photo was, of course, the lowest because they were not an actor in that behavior. They weren't the one who had actually done anything. They just got that sent to them. In addition, as there was a wider age gap between the two people who were involved in this hypothetical relationship, they were more likely to support registration. So if it was a 22 year old, with a 15-year-old, about half supported registration for the 22-year-old. We also found that they were more likely to support registration if it was two males in the relationship than if it was two women or if it was a heterosexual relationship. And also asking about male behavior, they're more likely to support registration of males than of females.
1: And I think to provide also just some context, um, so sort of recently what's been happening is teens who have been sort of found to be engaging in sexting have really come into some harsh consequences under child pornography laws. Is that correct?
3: Yes. In fact, even in our results, we received the lowest level of support. Uh, there was still considerable approval for either registering or uh, other kinds of consequences for even receiving a photo uh, or, or uh, initiating sending a photos. We've had some popular press cases, legal cases that have entered the popular press, where you know, a 14-year-old girl takes a photo of herself, sends it to her boyfriend or, or somebody else, and then that photo is distributed over a wide network, and, and prosecutors face a real problem with deciding what part of child pornography laws to, to apply. And, uh, and kind of coming back to what I was saying before, you know we're in this lag where we've got this new technology and all these new abilities, but and fairly similar kinds of behavior that we've had, you know historically forever. But yet these new abilities to be able to distribute it instantly with perfect copies and you know and digitally send things across the globe instantly. And our rules haven't kept up with them. So, prosecutors are faced with sometimes having a responsibility to apply the laws that's written. The laws that apply are these child pornography laws, which are designed to protect youth, not prosecute youth. Yet they're the only statutes that apply to this behavior, and in fact, by their definition, do. And so sometimes the sender of the photo is looking at being charged with distributing child pornography, when that certainly isn't the intent of the law.
2: And anecdotally, we've been talking with prosecutors from counties around our area, and they're feeling perplexed about what do we do with these cases? How do we handle these cases? Is it appropriate to charge a 14-year-old girl with distributing child pornography if she sends a picture of herself? That's not really the intent of the law, but yet there needs to be some consequence, and they do come before these prosecutors. And so that's part of our next plan for our research is to do some more in-depth interviews with prosecutors and judges to find out how are they actually handling these cases, how frequently are they seeing them, um, and what do they think is appropriate in these cases.
1: And so one of my next questions is going to be sort of what do you see as the practice and policy implications of this research that you either have done or plan to do in the future?
2: In terms of policy, I think the goal would be to try and find a more balanced and nuanced approach to handling these cases. Clearly, there are cases where a young you know, adolescent will send a picture of themselves to someone else. That person then distributes it to someone else, and there can be really devastating effects. So we don't want to say that all sexting is you know, benign and not a problem, because this can be harmful once somebody loses control of that image. In addition, there are cases of you know, older, you know, adult people who are, you know, grooming and pressuring kids to send pictures and doing things that are inappropriate in that way. And in those cases, we feel like that is a place where legal intervention makes sense. But for the cases of, you know, two kids who are are doing this together, and there's no pressure, there's no coercion, then maybe the legal intervention isn't the most appropriate, but some education and some other types of intervention may be more appropriate there.
3: Of course the devil is in the details there and developing hand in hand with uh, best practices and uh, policy responses are the statutory limitations and you have state, state legislators and courts involved in deciding what happens here and sometimes their hands are tied by the language of the corresponding statutes. So it seems very apparent that statutory reform or adjustment at least going to have to happen. Child pornography laws may need to be slightly limited or new statutes that would uh, apply to youth involved in these sort of consensual behaviors may have to be developed to supersede the child pornography laws in order to allow uh, prosecutors and the police and school officials and you know, all, the, all the folks involved uh, to give them the leeway to make decisions about whether or not there's coercion or uh, what's sometimes called sextortion, where you send a photo and then somebody uses that against you uh, in terms of uh, threatening to humiliate you into doing things you don't want to do.
2: In terms of the practice implications, one of our next goals for our research that we're just beginning is to go into schools and to do some in-depth interviews and focus groups with youth, um, parents, and teachers to find out more about the ideology of sexting, to see in what circumstances is it happening, how prevalent is it, under what conditions, what is the context in which it occurs. Because we want to have a better understanding of what is the relationship, if any, between sexting and teen dating violence. I mean, of course, we believe, you know, there are youth that are being coerced or in the context of an abusive relationship being pressured into engaging in these behaviors. Um, but also to understand. What might be the connections with bullying? Are there peers that are pressuring someone or using um, those kinds of images or messages to try and harm another person or embarrass another person? Or is it just, you know, playful flirtation? And to really understand all the nuances behind that behavior, so then we can help to develop prevention programs and other kinds of interventions to help to work with the schools, the parents, and the youth to find what is the best way to prevent and educate youth about appropriate use of technology in ways that, that they can then make more informed decisions.
1: Right, I think that's really important. If this has sort of become a behavior that adolescents consider almost normative or part of their relationships, but also one that has harmful consequences not only legally, but maybe for, you know, their own personal development, they might not even be aware of. It seems to hear from them would be really be an important way to understand more of that.
3: Our shared experience with talking with practitioners and when presenting at ATSA, for instance, there's a generational gap, and an older adult, I suffered for this as well, but I think we really don't understand the way in which these uses of technology are experienced by today's youth. You know, to look at it and bracket something as, oh, this is sexting, we need to do something about it, it may be that, you know, this is just the same as as talking on the telephone for earlier generations or going to the movies or, you know, where new technology changes the way things go down or, you know, the presence of an automobile in a teen relationship, for instance. And so, you know, one of our goals is really to see how this is really perceived and and used and utilized and what the, the opinions are, before sort of jumping to, you know, making big practice intervention or prevention claims. Um, And it may very well be that these things are really part of just a bigger global category of dating violence or coercion. And maybe they're they're all addressed in, in the same kind of way. And you talk about them and address them in the same kinds of ways.
2: As adults, as, you know, 30, 40, you know, we look at technology as being a part of life, you know, sort of a, a segment of life. And for an adolescent, technology is inextricably linked. Right. You can't pull out technology as a part of their life. It sort of is everywhere within their life. And so to sort of say this is somehow different from their other dating behaviors or their other courtship behaviors is really kind of missing the point. But to them, this isn't new technology. This has always been there.
3: It's just life. One of the things that's been striking me recently, too, is we will talk about sexting and we will think about cell phones and cameras and you know and stuff like that. but this this is also, uh, as you mentioned earlier, inextricably linked to Facebook as well and or social networking. and so the the convergence of a laptop, an iPad, a cell phone, an iPod touch, you know all of those things together, in some ways the five categorization. And then, you know, integrating that, all of those things back into your just your day-to-day social life also, you know, may suggest that these are just a part of a bigger phenomenon.
2: Part of that generational gap is also that as parents, we don't necessarily know these technologies as well as our kids do. And so being able to monitor these behaviors or even understand what the possibilities of these behaviors are is difficult for many parents. And so that's part of why we're hoping to bring the parents in and get the parents involved Um, Because parental supervision is such an important part of keeping these behaviors from getting out of control and becoming problematic and knowing how to identify youth who might be doing something that's not appropriate or getting close to that line of, of behaviors that are not appropriate.
1: I was just wondering if there was something as social workers that we should be either concerned about or thinking about in terms of being able to support adolescents around this behavior or choice to engage in sexting.
2: I guess there's, I mean, there's a couple sides of that. One part of that is just not to panic, not to overreact to these behaviors because they're new and they're foreign and they're different and to think that all kids must be doing it and all kids who are doing this are going to end up in trouble and it's going to lead to these difficult consequences. So thinking about not overreacting to the behaviors, but to take a balanced perspective on what's happening and to try and and understand it. I mean, of course, I'm not saying that I would want, you know, my own 12-year-old children to be doing this. Clearly, I would not. But as social workers, to try and avoid that urge to really sort of panic and freak out about it and instead try to talk to youth on their level about what's involved, what they're doing, why they're doing it, in order to try and get to some of those contextual factors and to understand you know, where is there the potential for abuse, where is there extortion, where is there coercion, and to teach youth how to be savvy about how they use the Internet and aware of the potential risks that may be involved if they you know, can lose control of an image or lose control of a message, um, the ways that that can be so easily distributed to the, to the whole world. So in some ways to be realistic about the consequences while also not overreacting too much.
3: I'm trained as a sociologist. I've never practiced or, or studied as a social worker. And one of the concepts that is, uh, is a classic in the field is this idea of moral panic. And, and that's not to say that, you know, these aren't important issues. In fact, they're very, very much important. But there is a tendency with new things. Uh, and actually, we came across this great quote that uh, one time, that technology is anything that was invented after you were born. And I think that applies in many ways here because we tend to be afraid, we tend to be, you know, concerned and, and threatened by the things that we're not familiar with. And there is a potential here to overreact, and that's, that's one of the definitions of a moral panic is when the, when the social reactions are not in scale with the real threats of the phenomena, whatever that is. And so, and in this case, it seems horrible. Some of the data that, that we were discussing earlier about the prevalence, these numbers vary widely, and they vary greatly depending on the definition of sexting, the population, the, the, the method of data collection, where we've seen numbers where saying that 20% of teens have distributed a picture, a nude or semi-nude picture of themselves. That's extraordinary. Other research suggests that that probably is, isn't the, the scale of it, but uh, that can be really scary. And as Douglas Adams would say, don't panic.
2: But on the other side of it, I think, you know, just to give, you know, sort of the other Mm -hmm. point of view, is that it's not necessarily totally benign. And as I mentioned before, you know, we don't, we're not advocating that this is okay, healthy behavior. And instead, I would say I think that prevention probably needs to start as early as elementary school. Mm -hmm. I mean, kids are having cell phones when they're, you know, in fourth grade, third grade. And teaching them that anything that they do online or on their cell phones is not private that you can't expect that you do something and nobody else will see it. Even if your parents have locked down your security settings on your Facebook, that doesn't mean that it's private and that anything that they do online, they can't take back again. So once you put it out there, you can't control who sees it, who distributes it, where it happens next. So then instead to do skill building around... Um, not giving in to pressure around considering the reactions that other people might have and the other possibilities of what someone might do with or think about what you've put out there. And just to remember that nothing is really anonymous. And I think if we start that skill building early and continue that as they grow up and become more savvy with the technology, then we give youth the skills and the ability to really behave responsibly and make appropriate decisions.
3: And I think many of those things, you know, she just listed are applicable skills and important, you know, strategies for a variety of challenges that you face with regard to dating violence and sexual coercion, talking and harassment, bullying, you know, they're they're all part of the same spectrum of raising your kids to be or counseling your kids or your clients to be to be strong, to make good decisions for themselves, to have good esteem about themselves and, and think out the consequences of the things that they're going to do. Once again, it may be part of a, a larger strategy to help protect kids from a variety of, of, of threats and challenges that they face.
1: It seems to me, too, that that would overlap also sort of with the way that we think about sort of sexualization of youth, um, and in particular um, girls, especially in our society in the United States, in terms of messages that they may be receiving from society or the media, you know, with respect then to the decisions that they need to make to keep themselves safe and be able to sort of follow a healthy developmental trajectory.
0: Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. And those things all support one another.
1: I think in some ways as well,
0: the
2: media reaction to some of this may actually be encouraging some <laughs> girls to participate in this kind of behavior. If we put it out there in the media that all of the youth are doing it and everybody's putting nude nude photos of themselves up on Facebook, then, you know, a girl or a boy who's feeling insecure or feeling pressure around what are the appropriate behaviors is going to get that message while everybody else is doing it. I probably should put a picture of myself up there as well. And so then you add in the person they're flirting with that they want to to entice or who may be saying, yeah, sure, send me the picture. I'd love to see it. If they feel like everyone else is doing it, if they're hearing the message that everybody else is doing it, they may be more likely to do it. So we may be doing a disservice by overreacting or giving the message that all youth are participating in this activity. If we can reframe it as this may not be as big of a problem as we originally thought, then we may actually give those youth permission to make the decision not to participate in these kinds of behaviors.
3: I've recently had the experience of mentioning in passing some of my research uh, in in a variety of my classes with undergraduate students. It's interesting the reaction to a person has been, oh, like Brett Favre, who you know got, of course got in a lot of trouble for sending photos of himself. And I think those kinds of examples can serve as cautionary tales to youth as well. Uh, you know, seeing the consequences and sort of taking the luster off of
2: some of these behaviors.
1: Great. Is there anything else that you were hoping to share with our listeners today?
2: I guess going back to to what I had said about parental supervision and the importance of parental supervision, because parents may not always be as savvy with these technologies and have as much understanding as their adolescents do about how this technology works, I think it's important for parents to try to educate themselves about how the technologies work and what are the possibilities and to try and supervise that online activity, and be aware of what their children or their youth are involved in, um, including just being the one who pays the cell phone bill. If you can keep an eye on how many texts are going in and out, and or texts, I'm sorry, <laughs> are going in and out, and you know, are they happening in the middle of the night or during the day, and being aware of what's happening, just the act of seeing the cell phone bill can be helpful and monitoring what's going on on the internet, what sites are they going to, what are they seeing frequently, and just having open communication with their, their children about what they think is okay and what they think is you know, appropriate behavior and the, the potential consequences if the youth decide to get involved in something that's you know, potentially dangerous or in poor judgment.
3: I think we said this, but I'm not sure how directly, but my sense and my approach to parenting on this is, at a personal level, is the more they know about the potential consequences, which in the current context are great, you know, a charge, let alone a conviction of child pornography or distributing child pornography is really, really, really a big deal. And, and I have trouble emphasizing that to our children. But yet, you know, it is an incredibly serious event in somebody's life. And, to, you know, to potentially end up on the sex offender registry and all the consequences that goes along with that, let alone the fines, prison, you know, all those things, of course, too, they're really, really extraordinary. So, you know, I think not soft-selling the consequences might be a, a good parenting strategy as well.
2: And speaking to their own pride and their own sense of Mm. self around, do you really want everyone in your school to see this picture that you're thinking of sending? Or do you want everybody in your school to know what you've done because you don't know what will happen to that message after you send it? And I think that also speaks to youth as well. The idea of sex offender registration or prison seems unlikely (laughs) and far away. Sometimes those other things about reputation and embarrassment can also speak volumes.
3: Yeah, and a serious understanding of, of the loss of control of anything you put on the Internet, whether or not it's a Facebook status post or a picture you post or send out or it's a, an email message you send. You know, Once it's sent, once it's posted, you have lost all control of it. It's not just even if your friends all delete the copy of the message but or the picture, but it's cached in search engines and it's perhaps copied by friends of friends of friends. And sort of making very clear the loss of control, I think, is, is a major strategy as well.
1: I thank you both so much for talking with me this afternoon. I look forward to reading and hearing about the future steps that you're planning to take with this research. I think it's really important for youth and also families and social workers as we learn how to best sort of deal with with sexting.
3: Well, thank you very much. It was a great opportunity. Thank
1: Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the collaborative research team of Dr. Poco Kernsmith and Dr. Roger Kernsmith discuss the problem of youth sexting and practice and policy responses. Thanks for listening and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.